everyone, and welcome back to Season 2 of Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna, and we are excited to get into our interview later, um, which we know you will be thinking about long after the interview is over, because we are. Whew. But, uh, but first, we wanted to let you know about some new data that is available at ICPSR. Um, so the first is a really interesting data set on COVID-19 disruptions that are disproportionately affecting female academics globally. Um, and this was in 2020, so these are new data. And these data include um, information about things like school closures and the shift to working from home, um, social distancing, how all of that is disrupting economic activity around the world um, and really thinking about kind of who are the winners and who are the losers in that. Um, and this particular survey was administered globally to a broad range of academics across various disciplines. Um, and they were looking at really nuanced data on those respondents' circumstances, including things like spouses' employment and the number of, uh, the number of children and ages of children. Um, so really interesting data there, and we will connect to that into the show notes. So another data set we would like to tell you about is called Targeted Interventions to Prevent Chronic Low Back Pain in High-Risk Patients. And this is a multi-site, pragmatic, randomized, controlled trial, and it's also known as the TARGET trial. And it was done in four U.S. cities from 2016 to 2019. And so TARGET basically was a primary care-based, multi-site, cluster randomized oh, i'm sorry i can't say all this stuff hang on <laughs> like why <laughs> it's right. a lot of good words this is important data but boy it's a tongue twister it's a lot of acronyms and so i'm gonna break it down for you so it talked about it compared guideline-based care to guideline-based care plus a referral to psychologically informed physical therapy Interesting. Okay. For patients presenting with acute lower back pain and identified as high risk for persistent disabling symptoms. So this study included, I uh, mentioned before, uh, four locations, and they were the Boston Medical Center, Intermountain Health, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Very cool. I'm really interested to looking into those data more. Um, that uh, as someone with lower back pain, that is a very interesting uh, thing to look at. Um, we also have a new research spotlight in our bibliography. Um, if you haven't used these yet, these are really cool. So the research spotlights are just short literature reviews on a topic of interest to students and researchers where findings that are based on data that's available from ICPSR, we compile those findings and we cite those findings. Um, so all of that to say, this new spotlight is called Criminal Justice and the LGBT Population, and it focuses on the risks to research of underreporting crimes that are involving LGBT community members. Um, it also includes hate crime reporting trends, um, LGBT at-risk youth. This is part of a trio of new research spotlights that summarize research focused on LGBTQ populations. Um, so there's some really, really important 
data and articles that are included in this research spotlight, um, I highly recommend that, that you take a look at that research spotlight. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Anna. And now on to our interview. Welcome back, everyone, to episode three of ICPSR's Data Brunch. Today, we have a really special guest, uh, Fabian Pfeffer, a sociologist and associate professor at the University of Michigan with research focusing on social inequality and mobility, wealth, and education. Fabian is director at the Center for Inequality Dynamics, which was founded at the Institute for Social Research in 2019 as a partnership between ISR, the Institute Survey Research Center, and the University of Michigan's College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. And before we start, I just want to say a huge congratulations, Fabian, for your recognition in 2020 with the William Julius Wilson Early Career Award from the Inequality, Poverty, and Mobility section of the American Sociological Association. Congrats! <laughs> Thank you. It's very we exciting. So, we're so happy to have you here with us. And um, yeah, we're happy to be able to, uh, whenever we're in person, cross paths with you at, at ISR. So, that would be wonderful. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, here at Data Brunch, we like to kind of take a step back and tell the stories behind some of these uh, awesome projects and uh data collections that are going on in the world. And so we just want to kind of give you a chance to tell your own story, uh, your, your research story or your data story. What makes it a great story for our listeners? Excellent. Well, I think, you know, I do research on social inequality. So in some sense, it's a story that affects everyone, right? We all have a position in this unequal structure. So I think it's a topic that each one of us grapples with in some sense. Um, and a lot of my research recently has been on a particular aspect of inequality, namely wealth inequality. Um, so wealth is different from income, right? Income is the stuff you get you know, on a monthly basis from various sources. Wealth is the stuff you have on the side, um, sort of a, a you know, stock. Um, so it could be savings could be uh, money that's in your house, your home equity, could be a car, could be a pension account, and so on. Or it could be, you know, debts, credit card debt, student debt. Um, and when you put all of that together, that's when you get um, what we typically call net worth. So a lot of my recent uh, work has been on net worth as this very distinct and quite drastic uh, dimension of socioeconomic inequality. Very cool. Uh, I already have about 15 questions, so um, this is going to be quite yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, so I know that you work with, I think it's called the Inequality Lab. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Mm -hmm. Sure. Actually, the Inequality Lab is how the Center for Inequality Dynamics got started. Um, so I have appointments at both the Institute for Social Research and at the Department of Sociology. 
And one of the big benefits of being in a department of sociology is that you get a lot of students. Um, and as I started out there, I was really looking for ways to bring students I work with together so that a lot of the mentoring that happens is not just sort of a conversation that's always one-on-one, -on -one, but also really something that happens in community. Um, so I got together with those students and said, what should we do? Uh, should we call ourselves a lab? And they said, sure, let's do that. Uh, none of us sort of knew what, what that would be, but we started filling that with some content and came up with structures that were useful for doctoral students, you know, for, you know, sort of certain ways to present their new ideas, um, ways to get feedback on their written work and so on. So that is in many ways where the Center for Inequality Dynamics got started as a sort of bottom-up process. Um, and it still exists within the center now as hopefully as we're getting back from the pandemic as sort of a hustling and bustling space where lots of doctoral students are around and some undergraduate students to push forward that kind of foundational research on social inequality. That's awesome. I was a sociology student myself, so getting to see how, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for how sociology students can, you know, make the world a better place. And I'm so Excellent. excited to hear that. That's the hope. Totally. So it's really cool to see that the Center for Inequality Dynamics actually came from the Inequality Lab. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that tidbit. And thanks for your students for helping make Absolutely. that happen. All right, so I am thinking about when you uh, a moment ago were talking about wealth and income. Uh, every once in a while, someone says something and my, my wheels get turning. So you said, wealth is the stuff on the side. Wealth is not income. And, and if I understand it correctly, you mentioned that like student loans, that would be in the wealth category? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. So all kinds of debts. So it could be student debt, medical debt, legal bills. Um, all of that is on the on the negative side of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, then the, the reality of the US today is that when you look at the wealth distribution, unlike the income distribution, there is the section of the distribution at the bottom that's negative, right? So typically we don't have typically we don't have negative income, but certainly, namely 15% of the US population have negative wealth, right? They have more debts than they have assets. Um, and that's one feature that makes the wealth distribution really different from the income distribution. Uh, there are many other features. One, for example, is that inequality is just so much higher when it comes to wealth. Um, there are a couple of sort of indicators for that, um, numbers that make it very clear that um, it's just radically more unequal. It's also more concentrated at the very top, right? So this is often an idea that people have when they talk about wealth is we know that there are a couple of billionaires around and then there are many people who have nothing or, or less than nothing. Um, and both of these things sort of are true. I think it's, you know, when I study wealth, I typically don't study the billionaires. So I don't think about concentration at the very, very top, although that's an interesting topic to study. I often study wealth sort of across the distribution, right? From those we just discussed at the very bottom that are in net debt to sort of what you may call the wealth middle class and, and what that type of wealth does to their life, to their opportunity, and to the opportunities of their children. Thank you for that. If I could ask a follow-up, 
why does it matter if wealth inequality is different from income inequality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think it matters a lot because it's so in addition to it just being more unequal, it's also somewhat independent from income. So there are households that are high on one dimension, you know, high income and low wealth and, and the reverse. Um, so it's not perfectly correlated, right? So it's something else. And we also see that it actually exerts effects that are different from the income effects. So for example, whether you go to college and graduate from college, to a large part and increasingly as some of, as some of my work has shown, also depends on your parents' wealth even if you know their income is the same, um, wealth makes a difference uh, independently of income. Um, so I'm showing this sort of in, an, in a generational perspective, right? Where your your life chances depend on wealth. Also, um, I've recently also shown this in a in a recent article in an international comparison. So, for example, there's lots of social scientific research on cross national differences in inequality. Right? So we know that some countries are more unequal than others. We know that the U.S. has very high inequality. Scandinavian countries, comparatively lower inequality. All of that research is based on income information. So now you would say, okay, well, does it matter uh, if we look at wealth? Well, it turns out it does because the international ranking of inequality is totally different once you look at wealth inequality. Right? So whether a country is unequal in terms of income tells you basically nothing about whether it's unequal in terms of wealth. So that really was an interesting finding in that paper that wealth inequality at the national level is very different from inequality at the national level. There's one little exception. Uh, that's the U.S. Again, number one on both dimensions, you know, very high income inequality and very high wealth inequality. So it sticks out as the special case. Ooh, that is fascinating. So has the pandemic affected wealth inequality? Yeah, I think that uh, is the uh, crucial question that remains to be studied uh, as sort of the data will come in. My suspicion is based on work that I've done based on the Great Recession, so 2007, 2008, financial crash, right, housing market crash, what we've seen in that study is that wealth inequality had been increasing for many decades, but that increase in inequality really accelerated throughout the recession and in its aftermath. So, for example, there was quite quick recovery at the top of the wealth distribution. Um, there were sustained losses basically everywhere else. Um, and the overall level of wealth inequality really rose very drastically in the recession and its aftermath. If that's any guidance, then what, we're, what we may be seeing after the pandemic may be even worse than that. I think we've seen some of that actually already, right? The financial markets have been to some perhaps surprisingly stable. Uh, financial markets are, you know, that's where wealthy people have their money. Actually, financial assets are very concentrated at the top. Um, and even, you know, short shifts really don't matter all that much at that end. And then, of course, at the other end, we've seen people severely impacted by, by the pandemic, right? Earnings losses, tapping into any savings they had, going further into debt and so on. So my hunch is that, you know, compared to the, the, the sort of impact of the Great Recession on wealth inequality, that was tremendous. 
will probably pale in comparison to the impact of the pandemic. But I think that remains to be seen. You know, there are other there are other tendencies too, where some segments of the population uh, weren't able to spend a lot of money, so they saved more money than they ever did. You know, uh, truth be told, we got to wait for the data, and uh, it will be interesting. But there will be major shifts, I think, to the wealth distribution, and my suspicion is it won't be better. So quick follow-up to that, and I know, sorry, Dory, I'm interrupting you, um, but there's so many questions. So when, like, you say we need to wait for the data, when do you think that data, like, is that, like, within the next year or within the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. No, I would say within the next year. Um, So lots of my research and that of other researchers in this area has been based on data produced at the University of Michigan, uh, such as the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, Uh, that since the 1980s has collected information on families' assets, right? So what they hold in assets and how much that is worth. Um, Basically, everything I've told you about so far comes from evidence based on the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, PSID. Um, There are other surveys that do that too. And then the Center for Inequality Dynamics is currently engaged in a very massive data construction effort that uses text records of all American households to look at wealth and its intergenerational transmission. But that will take like three or four years. So that's a a bit away. Thank you. So is there a breaking point for wealth inequality? For example, what happens if you start to see negative wealth on a mass and possibly spreading scale? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you, I guess we've many of us have been asking ourselves about these breaking points in a in a situation of severe and growing inequality. Um, on the debt question, I will say that we are probably you know sort of within within the pandemic setting in a moment sort of historical moment where there is. Um, an opportunity sort of to reorient people's thinking about what it takes for a rich country to make sure that everyone profits from living in a rich country. Um, So for example, the debt question is much more central today than it was just a few years ago. Um, You know, canceling student debt has moved from an idea that was traded within academia for a while to the public policy debate um, and that's a that's a real achievement, I would say, but it's also uh, really thanks to the historical moment of people realizing one um, that you know many people can come into debt uh, due to no fault of their own, and two, we've actually set up uh, structures that are in many ways predatory, right? The the way student debt is structured uh, is often highly predatory. It's highly unequal. There is targeting of disadvantaged uh, families and especially families of color. Um, and I think that during the pandemic and post uh, George Floyd has just become a realization for many people that these are unjust systems that we have decided to put in place. And we could also decide uh, to take out of place. And I think there is quite a bit of movement there. So, so yeah. Uh, there may be a breaking point. For everyone who's listening, we're we're cheering silently in the background. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I, I couldn't agree with this more. 
So people who are listening to this, how can they use your work to make a difference? And what can we do about this? Another excellent question. And of course, the most difficult one, right? So, I mean, I grapple with this in my daily life as an academic too. So when you go into the field, as Anna said, with, in some ways, a dedication to making the world a better place. And then you find yourself working for weeks on some obscure data question, you know, sometimes step back and say, okay, how am I, how am I doing this exactly? Um, one easy answer is through teaching, uh, in my case, um, you know, teaching enough students and, and telling them about the social world and making sure that when they come into a position of power, that they understand uh, the systems that replicate inequality. That's one way to do it in my own life, but you asked sort of what others can do with that. And that's where I think my role is basically on the data side. So that's why I'm on the data brunch, right? That we're really trying to invest in, especially now with that IRS tax database project in a large scale data construction effort that will be available to the broad public. And we're investing heavily in making it really accessible to that broad public, right? So we're, for example, working with a data visualization company and a very, you know, we'll, we'll be having a very intense data design process to make sure that that is a data product that anyone can access, can look into, can get informed um, about the wealth in their community, the wealth inequality in their community, the wealth transmission in their community, and hopefully it can become input to, to social action. Um, it's not quite easy to plan that, and it's not what we're trained to do, but I've been at ISR long enough to know that data takes on uh, its own life and is used uh, in many ways. Um, and so building these public data infrastructures, I think is actually one good way to help uh, make this a better place. I love that quote, data takes on its own life. I, I yeah. love it. So this is where the ICPSR jingle can come in now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we got to write one of those. Um, right. So, you know, I, I feel like we could, you know, I could ask you a thousand more questions, but what has been something that has been surprising to you in this work? Um, so... Unfortunately, as a sociologist, you uh, typically deal with social facts that are disheartening. And sometimes the surprises are further disheartening when you thought you would no longer be able to be surprised. Um, so one aspect of wealth inequality that I haven't talked a lot about is uh, the racial inequality in wealth. That is really tremendous in this country. Um, so for example, the typical white family. So imagine the typical white family in the U.S. has a net worth, right, total wealth of $100. I'll let you guess what the typical black family has. You know, $100 versus? $5. Oh, good, Dari. Okay, yeah, Dari is, is pretty close. So it's actually, it was as low as that. It's now at $12. Still, you know, tremendously low. But actually, if you look at children, you know, black children versus white children, uh, Dari is much closer. So that's about a, a cent on the dollar, so or a dollar and a hundred dollars. Um, so the racial gaps in wealth are really, really tremendous. And of course, that's what makes uh, wealth interesting to study, that it's both a reflection of long-standing historical patterns of active discrimination and 
you know, the continuation of some of these processes in slightly more subtle ways. So we also have some work where we show that the intergenerational transmission of wealth also has racial inequality in it, namely black children who grow up in the middle of the wealth distribution, and there are a few of them, most of them, as we just learned, grow up at the bottom of the wealth distribution. But those who grow up in the middle are more likely to fall down to the bottom as adults themselves. And that is reflective in my interpretation of really deep and severe and persistent forms of structural racism. Um, and that so the, the current you know, racial wealth gap is a combination of these two forces, longstanding historical and continuing forces of structural racism. Um, so that continues to be a surprise that I use, although it's a disheartening surprise in lots of my work, um, in the same quiz structure that we just did to educate people because it's such a jarring number that people tend to underestimate just how large the wealth gap is. Yeah, I'm trying to keep my tear ducts dry over here as you were yeah. talking. But I'm just thinking like, you know, and this might be, I'm not sure if this is something that you can answer, but do you ever just wonder how much time it's going to take to make these numbers look better? Yeah, in fact, some people have wondered that and tried to put a number to it. Um, again, I, I, I think we need to move on from the disheartening stuff at some point to keep your listeners. Um, but, um, you know, they did that post-recession, of course, as I just described, the recession broadly being bad for inequality. Um, it was especially bad for racial inequalities. There were more pronounced losses among the African-American community, the Hispanic community. Um, and so when you look at it over the last few years, projecting this forward, you're actually not seeing a whole lot of signs of hope of any um, closing of that gap, right? Uh, by the way, why is that? Why were uh, Black Americans and Hispanic Americans more impacted by the recession? Well, it harkens back to these exploitative systems of debt, for example, right? We've learned that subprime mortgages were to blame for the recession. Who was more likely to receive subprime mortgages? African-American households and Hispanic households. Why? Because they were targeted. Why could banks target them? Because we're living in a deeply unequal country where we've segregated, you know, neighborhoods that uh, that bank financial providers can target for these subprime mortgages. So again, you know, this is an example of current active discrimination that's really based on historical patterns of discrimination. So, so that disheartening answer in some ways is it's been quite stable. So I think what you want to take from that is the interventions here need to be quite drastic. Um, and perhaps, again, so I do hope to, to end on a note of hope, um, you know, perhaps that's something we can also take from the pandemic. In many ways, our interventions were relatively dramatic. I mean, if you think about what we were willing to do in terms of adjusting our daily life, you know, there was a big threat to all of our health. Um, and I think we acted in un unseen ways before that. We also started seeing the state spring into action and provide assistance. Um, and it will take something at least as drastic as that to really make progress on this. And in fact, a very smart demographer, Elizabeth Wrigley Field at the University of Minnesota, she recently estimated the impact of racism on, uh, sorry, the impact of COVID on mortality 
um, and compare that, compare that to the impact of structural racism on, on mortality, right? There is this large racial difference in mortality. And, um, you know, we're just sort of getting there. It would take multiple COVID-19 crises to really recreate that kind of racial inequality and mortality. Um, so there is something really fundamental, I think, about the, the pandemic and this really exceptional um, level of anxiety that we all had um, that in some ways I hope that we can maintain when it comes to, to aspects of racial inequality. We should be at least as anxious about that and it will require at least as large as, of an adjustment as that. And here, so here's the really good news. People are working on this, right? So it does take people who started basically, so Sandy Darity is one of them, a, an economist who in the 90s already uh, started putting numbers to what it would take uh, for reparations. Uh, back then, people thought that was you know, a little out there. Uh, I don't think people really paid attention. It seemed just too unreasonable that we would engage in this discussion. But he did, and he put numbers on it and you know, asked, what is our historical duty here? And fortunately, now, I think lots of political actors are knocking on his door and saying, tell us the number. We need to know. At least we need to start thinking about this. Right? There is a, a congressional committee that is working on reparations platform and so on. So let's hope that movement continues. But again, data may help us make that point. I and mean, you know, the numbers I just gave you on wealth, I think, should help make that point. Thank you for moving that in a more positive direction. Um, I know I have the next question, <laughs> but I wanted to just um, say thank you for, for just helping us conceptualize uh, the massive scale that is needed for change. Like you said, like three COVID crises. Uh, amazing. And, uh, and maybe for everyone uh, in this uh, recording room right now, like I don't know that we've ever seen the short of like going to war, you know, uh, the scale of mobilization of change and at such a rapid pace that we have seen in the, in the pandemic. So, mm -hmm. wow, yeah. that puts it into perspective. Yeah. For better or worse. I'm, 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 I'm betting on better. So Good. hopefully, Good. hopefully I'm in my you. lifetime. I'm with you. Yes. <laughs> yep. All right. So this next question, uh, is a little lighter. Uh, before pre preparing for this interview, I actually had an ice cream cone, <laughs> uh, <laughs> butter pecan yeah. ice cream. Uh, so that takes that, you know, we like to talk about food. And one of the questions that we ask is we, we talked a little bit about mimosas before we started recording yep. is, you know, so, so what do you like to have for, uh, for brunch? Yeah. Now, actually, after this discussion, it seems like mimosas are insufficient. We may need something stronger. So, uh, for brunch, um, I've been, you know, I've it's been a while since I've been to brunch, but I am a total brunch person. So I'm a sweet tooth. So waffles, all of that goes. But I will say proudly claim that I've I have weeks where I'm quite. Uh, dedicated to uh, cooking my two sons a delicious brunch-like breakfast on a normal school night. And for some reason, this comes in waves. Like I have a week where they're all, they would be, you know, all the dishes would be Instagram worthy if I had Instagram. Um, and then weeks where it's just cornflakes. Um, 
truth be told. But um, when I'm in the more creative ones, I normally do some kind of egg-based um, uh, dishes, um, some good old German recipes, because that's where I was born and grew up. Um, and uh, without sausage, I don't think that's the way to start the day. Um, and, you know, crepe, uh, pancakes, uh, all, the whole thing. So, yeah, I could talk. We could spend the rest of the podcast talking about uh, brunch foods. That would be fine. I'm in for that. <laughs> Me too. Um, well, as much as I would love to stay and chat about brunch for, uh, for uh, hours, what would be a way, if somebody wanted to know more about the work that you're doing or even contact you, how would they go about doing that? Sure. Um, so first, you could go to the uh, webpage of the Center for Inequality Dynamics. Uh, that webpage is inequalitydynamics.com. Um, from there or directly, you can get to my homepage, which is www.fabianpfeffer.com. Uh, you could also follow me on Twitter at Fabian Pfeffer. Um, and if you are on campus uh, coming through or you just are on campus, then uh, the Center for Inequality Dynamics is an open space that welcomes visitors um, and you should just swing by and see what we're up to. Cool. I'm going to be one of those people. Perfect. Uh, mimosas are in the fridge. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm yeah, gonna, don't wait, tell wait, anyone. Wait. It's it's actually true. <laughs> it's actually, if you walk by now, uh, we're waiting for the announcement of a big injection of resources that we're hoping to get uh, anytime this week. And for that, I have something in our cooler. But again, do not tell anyone. It's in a brown bag. So The secret is, yeah. is ours and all of our data brunchers. <laughs> exactly. All right. So thank you so much, Fabian. It's, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And um, just thank you for keeping it real during this interview. You know, uh, I think you painted a picture for not just us, but our listeners. And we just really hope that uh, that drastic change that you are working toward, that you get to see it. Great. I hope so, too, for all of us. And thanks. This is fun. I'm up for any future brunch, but if it's post-pandemic, I will insist on waffles or something to accompany. Fantastic. We're all coming to your house. That's right. Oh, perfect. Sounds good. On an on, an on week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, we're bringing it, right? <laughs> exactly. Great. Okay. No, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. I'm going to be thinking about that one for a long time. Same here. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize the difference between wealth inequity and income inequity and how longstanding a problem that is. There's just, there's so much to unpack here. It's, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot here. Yeah. The thing that I think I will take away, the biggest takeaway is just the amount of effort that, is needed to to make a dent in the inequities that Fabian talked about. So thanks again, Fabian. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And as you know, we we were chatting offline about how uh the more you can do, the better, right? Like if you if you are wondering what you can do and how much you can do, um please do what you can because this this stuff matters and it matters to a lot of people. So um so we hope that these data can bring you some evidence to, to make changes in your own communities. 
So that is the end of our episode. Thank you all for being with us today. And if you aren't already, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us what you like to hear by filling out the feedback form on our website. Awesome. You know, I realized um, the reason that we were able to get Fabian on to do this interview is because somebody requested that we talk to him. So um, we do we do listen to these feedback uh, forms and it's awesome to, to get to hear your ideas. Um, we want to say thank you as always to the over 700 members of ICPSR. This podcast uh, would it just wouldn't be possible without the ICPSR members. Um, and special thanks to our producer, Scott Campbell, who is as always invisible in the back, but you make this thing run. Thank you, Scott. You can get in touch with us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu, or emailing us at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. And I also want to mention if you are posting about this on social media, please use the hashtag data brunch. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. Wait, did we skip over a bunch of stuff? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, oh, we should tell folks we are, um, we'll be giving away some ICPSR swag um, to someone out there. So please do take a picture and tag us on social media using uh, hashtag data brunch. Um, you can also send us an email as well. And we cannot wait to see it. And with that, I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's data brunch. <laughs>